When Anne-Marie Fahey went missing, a secret affair known only to a few of her closest friends was revealed. A secret affair with an attorney who would later become the world's worst defense client. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to this week's episode. If you're listening on Patreon, I'm going to Mobile tomorrow. If you're listening on the regular feed, I've already been there, and I'm sure it was great to meet everybody. I wanted to let you know that my next meetup will be in Las Vegas for a meetup on April 30th. This is the weekend of CrimeCon, and the meetup will be in the evening after dinner. I will update social media on where exactly it will be, but very likely the bar at Bally's or in that immediate area. There will be tons of podcasters there, and it's completely free to show up to the After Hours Hangout. I will not be at CrimeCon itself. I will be out hiking during CrimeCon, and we'll be back in time to do the fun hanging out part, assuming I survive a desert hike. I have left the list of upcoming events in the description box, which includes a link to get tickets to the True Crime Podcast Festival. They put it in Dallas in August, so I certainly will not be out hiking. I will be at that event. And if you can go, I recommend going. It's going to be a great time. But let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode because it is a long one, and we will also have an after show on this with Bob Mata from Defense Diaries. And there is a lot to cover. This case was suggested by Connie, so thank you for sending it in. And I wanted to give a retro thank you to Sherry for sending in the Barbara Gibbons case from a few weeks ago and Helen for suggesting Claudia Lawrence. Most of my episodes are listener suggestions, and I always want to credit those, and I, for some reason, have been flaking recently on that, so I wanted to give those retroactive shout-outs. Let's start with Anne-Marie Sinead Fahey, who was born in January 1966 in Wilmington, Delaware. She was the youngest of six kids born into an Irish Catholic family. Anne-Marie was a bright child, and as the baby still at home while all the older kids went to school, she was very close with her mother. But when Anne-Marie was nine, her entire life changed when her mother died of cancer. Her father, who was already a heavy drinker, turned to alcohol to cope. This left the older siblings to finish raising themselves and Anne-Marie. The bond between the Fahey siblings, who had lost their mother, and had to rely on each other, ran deep. Anne-Marie ended up with five parents. When Anne-Marie was 15, the one thing her father had kept going, their house, was lost to foreclosure. He moved into a rental in another city, but Anne-Marie didn't want to leave her high school. She spent a year living with friends before that arrangement just didn't work out, and she had to move with her father. But her older brother, not wanting her to lose the one constant in her life, drove her to and from school every day so she wouldn't have to transfer. He also made sure she had a ride to her job at a local restaurant. This paycheck guaranteed she had things she needed even when her father didn't have the money. Eventually, her oldest brothers bought a house together, and they had Anne-Marie move in with them, and it was her third home in just three years. 
This was a lot of turmoil for a child from ages 9 to 18, and Anne-Marie would struggle with this internally, while on the outside, she seemed to still be succeeding and excelling. She's the type of kid that makes us say things like, kids are resilient, which I hate that phrase, because what we are seeing, what Anne-Marie was putting out there, was on the outside, and it looked that way. Few saw how Anne-Marie struggled with her childhood trauma, even as she was putting herself through school, working hard, and making good grades. And when her father died when she was 20, Anne-Marie continued to appear like she was coping well. After Anne-Marie graduated with a degree in political science, she took an internship in Washington, D.C., which led to a job with a congressman from Delaware named Tom Carper. The job was a receptionist, which doesn't sound like she was using her degree, but that's how you get started in politics, by taking whatever job gets your foot in the door. That's at least what I keep telling my oldest son, who has a degree in public administration and currently works as a bartender. But this isn't about him. Tom Carper ran for governor of Delaware for the 1992 election, and Anne-Marie was well-situated to work on his campaign. And when he was elected, he brought Anne-Marie to the governor's office with him. She became his scheduling secretary, which put her in a position to network with other influential people. It also brought her back to her hometown of Wilmington, where she got an apartment with a couple of friends. In April of 1993, Anne-Marie and a friend went to a political fundraiser where they met a local attorney named Thomas Capano. Anne-Marie was 27 and Tom was 43. He was also married and the father of four daughters. Tom would occasionally have business that brought him to the governor's office, and one day he invited Anne-Marie to go get lunch with him. By the fall of 1993, the lunch had turned into dinners, had turned into a full-blown affair. Tom Capano was well-known in Wilmington and Philadelphia. He was the oldest of five children born to a wealthy local builder. While his younger brothers, like their father, went into construction and real estate, Tom went to law school. He attended Boston College for his undergrad, and while there, he met Kay Ryan, who was a nursing student. She was a year behind him in school, so Tom decided to attend law school at Boston College so that they could stay close. In 1972, the two married and moved to Wilmington after Tom graduated. Kay worked in public health while Tom worked as a public defender, then as a prosecutor, and eventually in private practice at a major Philadelphia law firm. Five years into their marriage, their first child was born. They went on to have three more, all daughters. And at the time Tom and Anne-Marie met, Tom and Kay had been married for over 20 years. Tom seemed established, self-assured, and confident. All things Anne-Marie admired. She was the opposite. She was young. She could only afford her apartment with the help of roommates, and she was dealing with the fallout from her childhood. 
She was actively working on this in therapy, working on her anxiety, her insecurities, her bouts of depression, and her very serious eating disorder. I know deep discussions of eating disorders can be difficult to listen to for those who battle with them, so we are not going to get into all the details. What's important here is that the root of Anne-Marie's eating disorder was control. Her life had been tumultuous and there was so little in it she was able to control as a child and a teenager. She felt constantly put into situations where she had to make herself small and to go along to get along. But what she could control was her eating. She would set a goal weight, which was always underweight, and put value in her discipline to get there. Anne-Marie hid her eating disorder from nearly everyone outside of her therapist. Over the course of their relationship, Tom Capano did learn about Anne-Marie's eating disorder, and he claimed he wanted to be there for her. But like a lot of people, he thought Anne-Marie needed to be encouraged or pressured into eating, which is actually the opposite of what you want to do when the root of the issue is control. Pushing someone to eat will be perceived as another loss of control, and it can trigger a relapse or an escalation. If you have someone in your life who has an eating disorder, whether they're treating it or not, I recommend spending even just one session with a specialist in eating disorders to learn how you can actually support someone. Because what we think will help, things like complimenting their appearance when they're doing well, or trying to tell them how much to eat or what to eat, can actually backfire. Tom pushing Anne-Marie to eat may have come from a place of good intentions. However, I am not so sure about this because this was not the only area he tried to take control from Anne-Marie. At one point, he even pressured her to leave her job and go work for his brother. He promised there would be a free apartment in it for her, a nice car, but Anne-Marie refused. While she would accept some financial help from Tom when she needed it, she did not want him to have control over her employment or even the roof over her head. Anne-Marie did move in 1997, but it was into an apartment without roommates with only her name on the lease. It didn't come with strings attached. Another issue Anne-Marie had was that she was not proud of this relationship with Tom. She felt deep shame and guilt over being with a married man. She was putting the values she was raised with to the side, so she hid this relationship from most people. And she did end things with Tom a few times. But Anne-Marie did not like to hurt people's feelings, and she hated confrontation. So her way of breaking up with Tom would be to start backing off, trying to just let things fade away. But when she would do this, Tom would start calling her friends who did know about the relationship, saying that he was worried about her. 
He would email her at work, sending many emails before eventually getting a response. This back and forth went on until August of 1995 when Anne-Marie decided that the fading away was not working and she decided to break things off. Tom talked to her about this, assuring her that their relationship could be saved. He convinced her to go out of town with him for the weekend to talk things over. And when they came back from that trip, they had two very different opinions of what had happened. Anne-Marie confided in a friend that they bickered the whole time. She realized that even if Tom wasn't married and she wasn't carrying massive guilt over the relationship, it would still never work out. He was too controlling and too manipulative. So imagine her surprise when Tom thought things went so well that weekend that he began talking about leaving his wife. Anne-Marie wasn't just surprised. She was horrified. She had so much guilt over having this relationship with a married man, and that's when he went home to his wife and children every night. So think about what she felt when she thought he was leaving them for her. And he wanted to do this when she wasn't even sure she wanted to continue the relationship at all. Anne-Marie told Tom not to leave his family on her account. If he wasn't happy and felt divorce was the right decision for him, it had to be because that's what he wanted, not because he thought they were going to ride off into the sunset together. Tom did leave Kay in September of 1995, telling Anne-Marie that it wasn't because of her. It was just time. He moved in with his brother while he looked for his own place, which he eventually moved into. Around the same time, the governor set Anne-Marie up on a date. He had previously met a man named Michael Scanlon, who was a senior executive VP at a bank. He thought Michael and Anne-Marie would be a great match. Michael had a fancy job with a nice title, but he was focused on the company's philanthropic efforts and community relations. He cared about kids and the community, and he managed to make a career out of that. Mike was also from a big Irish Catholic family and seemed to be the perfect match for Anne-Marie. The two did hit it off and began seeing more and more of each other. And Anne-Marie was seeing less and less of Tom, particularly not seeing him romantically or intimately. And though Tom said he didn't leave his wife for Anne-Marie, he did take advantage of not having a wife around and called Anne-Marie as much as he wanted. When she wouldn't answer, he would keep calling upwards of 15 times a day. If he couldn't reach her, Anne-Marie would see him driving by her apartment. Soon, Tom found out that Anne-Marie was dating someone else. He threatened Anne-Marie that he would tell Mike that she had a relationship with a married man, and Anne-Marie genuinely worried that that information would ruin things. So she would try to appease Tom. While they were no longer in a sexual relationship, Anne-Marie would talk to him and go out to dinner with him, trying to keep him happy. And this continued even after Tom started dating another woman in November of 1995. Anne-Marie's emails to Tom 
from probably November through January showed a woman who was conflicted about her feelings. But then in February 1996, Anne-Marie sent an email telling Tom to accept that their friendship would continue as just that, friends. Any hope of a romantic rekindling had to just be let go of. Tom responded by sending her a dozen roses for Valentine's Day. Anne-Marie threw them in the trash while putting the dozen roses Mike had sent her in a vase. In March, it looked like Tom had finally taken the hint and moved on. Anne-Marie stopped getting phone calls and the unwanted contact. In early April, Anne-Marie wrote in her diary that she brought closure to her relationship with Tom. But then, on April 24th, Tom emailed and called Anne-Marie out of the blue. He was having a crisis, and he needed her support as a friend. His daughter was having brain surgery, and he was scared. Anne-Marie couldn't turn down someone dealing with something that big. And with the break they just had, barely speaking for six to eight weeks, she felt confident that they could have a casual friendship that she could retain control and enforce boundaries. But of course, that was not what happened because Tom's daughter, she wasn't having brain surgery. The entire pretense of getting back in touch with Anne-Marie was a lie. It was just a ploy. Tom knew this was the sort of thing Anne-Marie would not turn him down over. It wasn't long before Tom was wanting more and more of Anne-Marie's time and attention. And as she realized what was happening, she started backing off again in late May, early June. And when she did that, Tom started calling her friends again to find out where she was and what she was doing. Those old patterns were repeating. But Anne-Marie felt forced to call Tom herself on June 12th. She had fainted in the office, and she knew it was because of her eating disorder. She needed someone to come and bring her home. She didn't want to call Michael because he didn't know about her ED. The only person she could think of who both knew about it and would drop everything to drive her home was Tom. Tom didn't see this as a practical decision, but rather as a sign that he was the person Anne-Marie wanted in her life when she was at her lowest and most vulnerable. Two weeks after this, on June 27th, a Thursday, Tom emailed Anne-Marie and said he wanted to take her out to dinner that night. Anne-Marie agreed to go. After work that day, Anne-Marie went to an appointment with her therapist and then to dinner with Tom. The next day, Anne-Marie had a scheduled day off. She told her friends she planned to go to the salon for a manicure and pedicure, and then she was just going to go to the park and relax. She had been stressed and overwhelmed, and she just really needed a day to herself. 
but Anne-Marie never showed up at the salon for her appointment. It wasn't until Saturday night that her family realized there was something wrong. A bunch of people had called Anne-Marie and left messages, and one of them was Michael. He and Anne-Marie had plans to go to her brother's house for dinner, but he couldn't get in touch with her. When she didn't show up in time for the dinner, Mike called her brother and told him that he hadn't heard from Anne-Marie all day. They wondered if maybe a work event had come up or maybe Anne-Marie had just mixed up the date. So they waited a little bit, and when they still couldn't get in touch with Anne-Marie by 9 p.m., they called her landlord. They asked her to go check Anne-Marie's apartment. The landlord did a quick walkthrough but reported that Anne-Marie wasn't there. However, her car was parked in its usual spot. Anne-Marie's sister Kathleen then called the police to report her missing, but the officer told her that they either needed to go to the station to make the report or they needed to go to Anne-Marie's apartment and call from there, and then an officer would come by to take the report. So Kathleen and Mike drove over to Anne-Marie's apartment and the landlord let them in. Immediately, they noticed that it smelled like rotting trash. Anne-Marie kept her home clean, very clean. She took her kitchen trash out daily. Yet there was stinking food scraps in the trash can and rotting produce on the counters. They also noticed that there were some takeout containers with leftovers from a restaurant in the fridge, but they were dried out like they had been there a couple of days. That's also something Anne-Marie wouldn't have left behind. She threw that type of thing out if it sat there for a day. Anne-Marie's purse, which included her wallet with money and credit cards, was found in the apartment, but her house and car keys were gone. Kathleen and Mike decided to go ahead and report Anne-Marie missing. They called the Wilmington police first, and then they called Ed Friel, who was both a family friend and the Secretary of State. He sent the state police out to Anne-Marie's apartment, and the missing persons report was taken a little after midnight on Sunday, June 30th, 1996. The state police were part of this investigation, largely because of Anne-Marie's close connection to the governor. She managed his schedule, and they had to rule out the possibility that her disappearance was connected to her work with the state. The investigators asked when the last time anyone had spoken with Anne-Marie, and they could pinpoint it back to Thursday. And her voicemail messages seemed to back this up. Based on the number of messages, it appeared Anne-Marie had stopped answering her phone at some point on Thursday. And while the family was in the apartment trying to figure out where Anne-Marie might be, her sister found some letters in a drawer. They were all unsigned, but they didn't need to be because the letterhead was from the office of Thomas Capano. Kathleen turned these letters over to the police that night, but she didn't really know anything about the relationship between Anne-Marie and Tom. Like I said, Anne-Marie was embarrassed about this and she felt shame, so she hadn't told her sister about it. 
The police already knew who Tom was because he did work at the city and state level in various positions. Kathleen did tell the investigators that Anne-Marie was seeing a therapist, and if anyone knew about Anne-Marie's secrets, it would be her. So they called her in the middle of the night and asked specifically about Tom Capano. Due to patient-client confidentiality, she couldn't say much, but she could confirm that Anne-Marie had some type of ongoing relationship with Tom. The investigators decided to go get the details from Tom himself, and they showed up on his doorstep at 3.30 a.m. Tom answered the door, and he had clearly just woken up. He led the police into his living room and agreed to talk to them. When Tom was asked if he knew where Anne-Marie was, he said he did not. He last saw her at dinner on Thursday. He said he picked her up around 6.15 or 6.30, and they went to dinner in Philadelphia. They then went back to his house briefly while he ran inside to get some groceries he had for her and a gift he had bought. He then drove her back home and carried the food inside, but he said he wasn't there for more than a few minutes before he left. This much did seem to be confirmed by what they found at the apartment. The groceries were on the counter, the take-home containers in the fridge were from the restaurant they had eaten at, and even the gift Tom said he gave Anne-Marie was found in her apartment. Tom said he was home around 10 p.m. and hadn't heard from Anne-Marie since. But he also didn't expect to. While he did confess that he had a relationship with her, He said it was long since over, and they were really just friends. Tom speculated that Anne-Marie may have gone away for the weekend and would be back on Monday. They asked him if Anne-Marie could possibly be suicidal, and Tom said she had been in the past. The investigators then asked if they could do a walkthrough of his house, and Tom said no. His daughters were upstairs sleeping since he did have them for a weekend visit, and he did not want them to be scared waking up to police officers walking through the house. He did agree that they could come back later during the day for this walkthrough. They did manage to do it during the day, though Tom wasn't home when they first tried, but they eventually managed to get him to let them in the house. Tom did not permit them to open drawers or cabinets, so this was definitely just a walkthrough. At this point, they didn't see anything suspicious. The investigators tried to build a timeline for Anne-Marie the night she went missing. Much of what Tom said could be more or less verified. The server at the restaurant did remember them, particularly because of how cold they were to each other. She said they hardly spoke. Tom ordered for both of them, and he seemed to her to be bossy. Anne-Marie was, in her words, gaunt and somber. The credit card transaction showed that Tom paid the bill at 9.12 p.m., That's the last time-stamped proof of Tom's story, but the rest of it did work with the timeline, going to his house, going to Anne-Marie's apartment, and then going back to his house by about 10 p.m. That made sense with the drive time. It's what happened after 10 that was a giant blank. 
Anne-Marie's disappearance hit the news on Monday, and it was all over, which you can imagine with how close she worked with the governor. And with it being in the papers, tips came in. On Tuesday, Anne-Marie's hairstylist contacted the police to say that Anne-Marie told her that Tom Capano was crazy and she was scared of him. In addition to the things we already mentioned, like showing up outside of her apartment and refusing to leave her alone, the hairstylist also said that one time he grabbed Anne-Marie and accused her of ruining his life. The last time she saw Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie said she was going to tell Tom that there was no relationship there anymore, not even a friendship, and to leave her alone. Now, Tom had portrayed his relationship with Anne-Marie to the police as a warm friendship, and he was just trying to help this young, insecure woman. But that's not what the investigators were hearing from everyone else. Not a lot of Anne-Marie's friends knew about the relationship, but those that did largely backed up what her stylist said. Tom was manipulative, he was controlling, and Anne-Marie wanted to be free and clear of him. The same day the investigator spoke with Anne-Marie's hairstylist, the FBI reached out with an offer of assistance in securing phone warrants. They wanted to monitor Tom's phone going forward, as well as pull the last two weeks of records. They had already checked Anne-Marie's phone records from the night she was last heard from, Thursday night, and the last call from her phone was a star 69 call at 11.52 p.m. Star 69 would redial the last number that called. It seemed interesting to them when they got Tom's phone records and saw that he would use the star 69 feature on his own phone to return calls. Not a smoking gun, but something to note. Tom's phone records also showed that on the morning after Anne-Marie went missing, Tom called a woman named Debbie McIntyre. He actually called her repeatedly over the time they checked his records. In reaching out, Debbie told them that she didn't know anything about Anne-Marie and that she and Tom were just good friends. This would turn out to be half true. They learned from other people that Tom was actually in a romantic relationship with Debbie, and he had been for about 14 years. 14 years means that was the bulk of his marriage, and the entire time he was also seeing Anne-Marie. It was something he did try to keep quiet, just like his relationship with Anne-Marie. But that wasn't going to last. His connection to a high-profile missing persons case was not something he could keep a lid on. On Wednesday, July 3rd, it hit the papers that Tom was the last person to see Anne-Marie after they had dinner together. Tom assured those around him that they had dinner together, and that was it. He wasn't involved, and he downplayed even being on the police's radar, saying that there were other people Anne-Marie had issues with, like a neighbor and an old co-worker. Tom then went out of town for that weekend to get away from the media scrutiny, 
and he suggested his family do likewise. While Tom was at the Jersey Shore, there was a massive search for Anne-Marie at a park near her apartment. The governor showed up to help search, which brought more attention to the search and to the case, but nothing was found. The place the police really wanted to search was Tom's house. They had a reason to suspect Tom had something to do with Anne-Marie's disappearance, but they needed more. They needed probable cause that there was evidence in his home in order to get a warrant to search it. They had already done a walkthrough and saw nothing in plain sight that alarmed them, So they were definitely going to have to find some evidence before a judge was going to let them through his front door. As often happens, it wasn't any one piece of evidence that pushed them from suspicion to probable cause. It was multiple things. For one, they pulled Tom's credit card records and saw that he spent over $300 at a place called the Wallpaper Warehouse. Tom was in a rental, so why would he be putting out that kind of money on wallpaper? So they called the company and learned that this business actually had two sides to it. The wallpaper warehouse was one part. The other part sold carpets and rugs. They found out that Tom had actually bought an area rug and pad for his family room, on June 29th, about 36 hours after Anne-Marie was last seen by him. The company noted that this was actually the second area rug he had bought from them. He had bought another one back in September, right around the time he moved into his rental house. So what happened in nine months that necessitated replacing the area rug and then to do it shortly after his ex-girlfriend went missing. The first thought they had was that if Tom had killed Anne-Marie, he could have used the carpet to wrap her body in and dispose of it. They lucked out here on evidence because they found that the original rug was a remnant piece that the company had bound the edges on and sold to Tom as an area rug. The person who had bought the carpet from the rest of the roll was contacted and he allowed the police to take a clipping for possible future fiber comparison. They didn't know if it would matter or even be useful later, but they did take this just in case. So getting rid of a carpet was a step towards probable cause, but it didn't get them all the way there. The next piece came from Tom's housekeeper. She had been in the house before and after Anne-Marie went missing, so they were hoping she saw something odd. And luckily, she did. She said the last time she cleaned the house in June, before Anne-Marie went missing, everything looked the way it always did. She was supposed to clean the house the Monday after Anne-Marie went missing, but Tom had canceled on her saying he didn't have the kids over that weekend, so he didn't need her to come. That immediately caught the investigator's attention since Tom wouldn't let the police search his house in the wee hours of Sunday morning because his kids were there. 
but he sent his housekeeper away, saying that they hadn't been there. Tom did not have the housekeeper come back for three more weeks, and when she did, she was surprised to see the condition of the family room. The area rug, which had been in good condition, was gone and replaced with a cheaper one. And the love seat, which had also been in good shape, was replaced by two chairs. The room actually looked worse after the change in furniture, not better, so she couldn't figure out why Tom would have changed things. The missing rug and missing couch were enough to get the warrant. It was put under seal, so the public didn't know about it at the time, and the specifics stayed out of the media. The search warrant covered Tom's house, his Jeep Cherokee, and his ex-wife's Suburban, which Tom had borrowed that weekend because he did, in fact, have his daughters. The searches occurred on July 31st. In the Suburban, they vacuumed and pulled a number of hairs and fibers. They were able to match some of the fibers to the missing rug that they had a sample of. They then brought in cadaver dogs and a metal detector to search Tom's backyard, but found nothing there. Inside the house, though, they focused on that family room and found what they were looking for, small spots of blood. We are in the 1990s, so DNA technology did exist, but the issue was having a comparison sample. Both of Anne Marie's parents were deceased, and there were limits with testing against siblings. But Anne Marie's family told the investigators that they knew Anne Marie donated blood. Checking with the blood bank, they realized she had donated shortly before she went missing. But they were a little too late getting to it. Her blood had already been separated and the plasma was being shipped overseas. DNA is present in blood cells and plasma is the blood with the cells removed. That said, sometimes this process isn't perfect and a few blood cells will remain in the plasma. So the investigators had the blood plasma sent back from overseas and fortunately, they were able to find some blood cells. The DNA that they took from Anne Marie's blood was matched to the blood in Tom's living room. But it was not a one in a million, one in a trillion match. It was more like a one in 11,000 chance that the blood belonged to another white American. Having multiple women in Tom's life, including his daughters, the investigators did run the DNA against them as well to show that they weren't in that 1 in 11,000. And none of them were. So the chance the blood belonged to some random woman who was not Anne-Marie was circumstantially and forensically remote. But this was a small amount of blood, just a few drops, and hardly enough to say someone bled to death in that room. This could have been from a nosebleed. So while it was a huge piece to the eventual case against Tom, it wasn't enough just yet to support an arrest. The next big piece of the puzzle came in soon after when someone at Tom's brother's construction company said that Tom's brother, Louie, ordered four dumpsters from a site to be emptied suddenly 
on the Monday after Anne-Marie went missing. It was not the usual time to empty them, and the dumpsters were only half full. Going to the expense of emptying four half-full dumpsters seemed odd, but he did as he was told. He said he did look in one of the dumpsters because this was an odd request, but it just seemed to have trash in it. This statement sent a search team to the landfill thinking maybe Anne-Marie's body or at least some evidence was there. But again, nothing was found. In July 1997, a year after Anne-Marie went missing, a federal grand jury investigation began. On August 5th, through a letter to his attorney, Tom Capano was told he was the target of the grand jury investigation. There were three key people brought in front of the grand jury, all of whom the investigators believed knew more than they were saying. One was Tom's brother, Louie, who they wanted to ask more about the dumpster emptying. Another was Tom's youngest brother, Jerry. When they had pulled Tom's phone records, they saw that he had called Jerry multiple times over the weekend following Anne-Marie's disappearance. The third was Debbie McIntyre, who they heard was having an affair with Tom for years. While under oath, all three denied knowing anything about Anne-Marie's disappearance. Louis denied that he directly ordered the dumpsters to be emptied. Jerry testified that the calls between him and his brother the weekend Anne-Marie went missing had nothing to do with her disappearance. And Debbie denied that she had a sexual relationship with Tom and said that they were just good friends. While no one gave anything up to the grand jury, remember all three of these specific denials because they are going to come back up in the form of leverage later. Perjury is a crime after all. November 1996, a new tip came in that there was something hidden in the law office of one of the attorneys at Tom's practice. The investigators went there and found 10 pages of handwritten notes hidden on a bookshelf. The notes written by Tom were basically an hour-by-hour itinerary of Tom's activities for Friday, June 28th, the day after his dinner with Anne-Marie. It was basically an alibi crib sheet covering around 17 hours. He even noted who knew what about his relationship with Anne-Marie. According to these notes, Tom spent a chunk of time with his brother Jerry at the Jersey Shore. Tom's family had clearly closed ranks when it came to the grand jury investigation, and they were slowing things down. The investigators looked at the family and decided to put some pressure on one of them. The obvious choice was Jerry, who was known to have a history of drug abuse. They wondered if Jerry would choose his loyalty to Tom over his own family and possibly his freedom. 
To put this to the test, they began investigating Jerry for drug offenses. They knew he owned guns, and there is a federal law that prohibits people who are unlawful users of controlled substances or those addicted to those substances from having access to firearms. So investigators got a warrant to raid Jerry's house in October 1997. They found the guns pretty easily. There were several, and they were not secured. After more searching, they also found cocaine and marijuana. We're not talking drug trafficking amounts, more like personal use amounts. However, they were drugs in a house with guns, and Jerry was arrested and charged. The issue here was that the possible sentence Jerry would be facing actually wasn't that long since the illegal drugs was in the personal use range, and he could argue the guns were primarily for hunting. He was looking at possibly only six months locked up. That wasn't much leverage to get him to turn on his brother. They did get a bit more when CPS became involved. Jerry had young children, and the drugs and guns were found in their reach. But then, as part of this larger drug investigation, they also raided the home of one of Jerry's friends. This friend was a convicted felon, and they found him with a gun in his home. It turned out, Jerry had bought the gun. A straw purchase, which means buying a gun for someone else, circumventing their background check, is illegal. And this charge was much more serious, particularly since the friend he bought the gun for was a felon. Jerry was facing more like three years in prison. And if they found out he lied to the grand jury about what he knew in regards to Anne Marie's disappearance, they could also charge him with perjury. Multiple years in jail and a CPS investigation was leverage enough. Jerry, through his lawyer, told the investigators he was ready to talk in November 1997, about 17 months after Anne-Marie disappeared. A deal was worked out where Jerry would get probation, and they met in a private location where word wouldn't get back to Tom that his brother was seen cooperating. According to Jerry, Tom told him back in February of 1996 that he was being extorted and the person was threatening the safety of his children. Tom asked to borrow a large amount of money, $8,000. Tom did soon afterwards repay this money. Not long after that, Tom asked for a handgun for protection, and Jerry gave him one. However, he returned the gun in May 1996, and it didn't appear to have been used. It was as clean as it was when Jerry gave it to him. Tom also asked Jerry if he could borrow his boat if he ever had to do anything about the people extorting him, and Jerry said yes. So then on Friday, June 28th, 1996, Jerry went out of his house first thing in the morning to find Tom sitting in his driveway. 
Tom asked to borrow Jerry's boat, and remembering the conversation about the extortionist, Jerry asked, did you do it? And Tom nodded. They decided to meet at Tom's house later. Jerry said he was reluctant to get involved, but Tom was his brother, and Tom had helped him out when he had legal issues stemming from his drug use. He seemed to think he owed his brother this assistance. Jerry drove to Tom's house around 8.30 in the morning and saw a giant cooler with a chain and lock around it in the garage. There was also a rolled-up carpet. Tom and Jerry then loaded the cooler into the back of Tom's ex's Suburban and drove out to Stone Harbor, New Jersey, where Jerry's boat was. Jerry said they took the cooler onto the boat and went out about 60 to 75 miles from the shore. They threw the cooler into the water, but to their surprise, it floated. Even those heavy plastic coolers have foam on the inside, and they can be surprisingly buoyant. Jerry said they pulled out a shotgun he used for sharks and shot a hole in the cooler, but it still didn't sink. So Jerry pulled the boat up to the cooler and they pulled it back onto the boat. Jerry gave Tom two anchors to weigh down the body and turned around while Tom took care of it. When Tom said it was done, Jerry turned around and all he saw was a calf and foot sinking below the water. He did not see any more of a body and could not identify it. Jerry then rinsed out the cooler and they threw it into the water. Now, if Jerry was telling the truth, Anne-Marie's body was 200 feet down in the Atlantic Ocean in an area with shark activity. Not only was this going to proceed as a no-body murder case, there was no hope of it being anything else. Jerry said they went back to Tom's house and they took the love seed from the family room to a dumpster at Louis's construction site. Jerry confirmed that the couch was bloodstained. Then Jerry went home. Jerry agreed that he would testify to this in front of the grand jury and eventually at trial, and with that, he avoided prison time. Two days later, Tom's other brother, Louis, came forward to also make a deal. The only thing he did that was illegal was lying to the grand jury about the dumpsters. But perjury to a federal jury is a serious crime that leads to federal prison. Louis said that Tom asked him on Saturday to empty the dumpsters at the construction site, but he had forgotten until Tom called him on Monday to make sure he did it. Tom gave Louis a different story than he gave Jerry. When Tom talked to Louis on Monday to check about the dumpster, he said that he had put a love seat with blood on it in there along with some of Anne Marie's personal things, but he insisted he did not have anything to do with her disappearance. Tom told Louis that Anne Marie was an unstable woman who had shown up at his house one night and attempted to slit her wrists in his living room. Though the wounds were superficial and she was alive when she left his house, 
she did leave blood behind. Now that she was missing, Tom needed to get rid of these things because it would give the police the wrong idea. He told Louis that he knew Anne-Marie would show up whenever she felt like it. Whether Louis believed Tom or Louis decided to believe Tom, he ordered the dumpsters emptied and then lied about it in front of the grand jury. Louis told the investigators that he did look in the dumpster and all he saw was an upside-down sofa. But he said Tom also told him that he had thrown away a carpet that also had blood on it, but it was in a dumpster at a hotel that the Capanos owned. So he was able to order that dumpster emptied by himself. Louis had one more important piece of information. Tom told him that he also threw a gun in the dumpster. Jerry and Louis' stories changed the entire theory of the crime. Prior to this, the investigators believed that Tom and Anne-Marie went out that Thursday night and Anne-Marie told Tom things were done between them once and for all. She told him to leave her alone and in a rage, Tom attacked her, possibly beating her or strangling her to death. This was not premeditated. But Jerry told the investigators that Tom started setting up a story of an extortionist he might have to kill four months before Anne-Marie went missing. He borrowed a gun that he returned, but then told Louis he threw a gun away. So clearly, they're looking for a second gun here, which we're going to get to in a minute. With the possibility of premeditation on the table, it cast other things in a different light. Like the night Anne-Marie was killed. Tom knew she had the next day off of work and may have known that her plans were to spend the day alone and relaxing. That meant she wouldn't be reported missing right away and he would have time to dispose of the evidence and clean his house. On the other hand, maybe Tom hadn't planned the murder specifically for that night because why would he set it up so that he was the last person to see her alive? That doesn't sound like a very careful plan. But regardless if he planned to pull the trigger that night specifically or not, it seemed clear to the investigators that he planned to do it at some point. The police then put Tom under surveillance while they continued to present evidence to the grand jury, hoping that once they got the brothers back in front of them, they would tell the truth and that would lead to an indictment. But they didn't want Tom to be tipped off to his brothers turning on him. He had the means to go on the run and they certainly didn't want that. On November 12th, the officer watching Tom saw him leave his brother Joseph's house with suitcases. He loaded the suitcases into the car and Tom... Joseph and Joseph's wife all got in, and they headed towards the Philadelphia airport. Worried Tom was fleeing, they decided to pull him over and arrest him on the spot. Now, Tom wasn't fleeing. He was just driving his brother and sister-in-law to the airport for their planned vacation. But after Tom's arrest, which came a little sooner than they thought it would, the investigators played for him the tapes of his brother's interviews, 
So Tom knew a chunk of what they had against him, and he chose at that point not to speak. The arrest hit the papers immediately, and it included details from Jerry's statement, including that the marine cooler had been tossed into the ocean. And a man in New Jersey read that and came forward. He and a friend were fishing near the Indian River Inlet on the 4th of July weekend, 1996, when they saw a large cooler floating by. They pulled it out of the water. It was missing a lid. It had a bullet hole in it, and there were also blood stains. With the bullet hole and the blood, they assumed someone had caught something like a shark, put it in the cooler, and then shot at it. But the cooler was practically brand new otherwise, so they patched the hole, bought a new lid, and had been using it for over a year to store fish they caught. Though this cooler was found about 100 miles away from where Jerry said Tom threw it into the water, the investigators knew this tip was significant. And that's because it included facts that were not in the paper, like the lid being thrown into the water separately and that they had shot at the cooler. Those details were only known by the investigators, Jerry, allegedly Tom, and now these people who found the cooler. The police took the cooler into evidence, but it had been cleaned and used too much to get any DNA from it, but the barcode was still visible. They were able to match it to a cooler purchased by Tom Capano back in April 1996, two months before Anne-Marie went missing. And shortly after, she wrote in her diary that she finally brought closure to her relationship with Tom. In that entry, she called him a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous maniac. Not only did finding this cooler independently verify that part of Jerry's story, it was another piece of planning since Tom had no apparent reason to purchase a large cooler otherwise. Now, let's get back to the gun Louis said Tom said he threw in the dumpster. I just dropped that thread, but it was very important for the next piece to this investigative puzzle. The investigators could not find any gun sales directly linked to Tom Capano, so they looked at people close to him, and they hit pay dirt. Debbie McIntyre, Tom's longtime girlfriend, bought a handgun on May 13th, 1996, a month before the murder, and around the time Tom returned his brother's gun to him. When asked about this by investigators in the presence of her attorney, Debbie first lied, claiming she bought the gun but then threw it away because it made her nervous. They asked Debbie if anyone knew she had bought the gun, and she admitted that Tom knew. But at this point, Debbie began doing the math. Debbie and Tom were both married when their relationship began back in the early 1980s. Debbie had divorced her husband early on. Tom did not divorce his wife. He and Kay actually had three of their children after Debbie and Tom began seeing each other. And she kept seeing him for well over a decade, 
before he finally left Kay. At that time, Tom told Debbie that they had to wait a year and a half to get married so as to not embarrass Kay. And then Debbie found out that he was also seeing Anne-Marie while he was married to Kay and seeing her. And then after a separation, he started seeing a fourth woman. It had also been two years since Tom's divorce and still no marriage. Debbie had lied to the grand jury for him, which is a crime punishable by jail time. But she knew she also committed another crime for Tom when she bought that gun. She was about to go to jail for a man who lied to her over and over and over again. So thinking of herself, thinking of her children, instead of thinking of Tom, Debbie decided to talk in exchange for immunity. Tom had been writing to Debbie from jail, asking her to testify for him at his bail hearing, and even telling her what she needed to say. But when Debbie didn't show up for that hearing on February 4th, Tom must have known he had lost his control over her. Debbie, having ironed out a deal, told the investigators what she knew. In April of 1996, Tom asked Debbie to buy him a gun. He needed it to protect himself and his children because someone was extorting him and threatening the kids. Debbie agreed, but when she went to buy it, she mentioned to the salesperson that she was buying it for a friend. The clerk said he couldn't sell it to her because, like I mentioned before, it is illegal to buy a gun and then transfer it privately to someone else. So she left the shop empty-handed. In May, Tom asked Debbie to try again, and this time he drove her to a different gun shop. With Tom waiting in the car, she bought the gun and ammo, not telling the clerk that it was for someone else. Debbie said she immediately gave it all over to Tom. She never had possession of the gun longer than the time it took her to walk from the store to the car. Debbie said she had no idea Anne-Marie existed until she went missing. Tom called Debbie on the Tuesday after Anne-Marie disappeared. He asked her if she had heard the news about the missing woman. Debbie said, yes, she had seen the reporting, and at that time, it had only said Anne-Marie had been last seen dining with a prominent attorney, but it didn't name anyone. Tom knew his name was not going to stay out of the papers for long, so he was trying to give Debbie the heads up. Tom admitted to her that he had been seeing Anne-Marie while seeing Debbie, but that it ended around the same time he left Kay. According to Tom, Anne-Marie was mentally ill, and he couldn't shake her off, even though he said he ended the romantic relationship. He said that Anne-Marie probably wandered off and would show back up eventually, but he had no idea where she was or what happened to her. So Debbie's statement basically explained where Tom got the second gun that he told Louis he threw into the dumpster, and like Jerry and Louis, she was willing to testify against him. When Tom learned Debbie had turned on him, he attempted to arrange for someone to burgle her house to intimidate her. He then tried to arrange hits on both Debbie and Jerry, the most damning witnesses against him. 
On August 31st, 1998, Tom was charged with three counts of criminal solicitation. Two of the counts were for the hits on Debbie and Jerry, and the other was the attempted burglary on Debbie's house. It does seem, though, that these charges were not pursued, and that's probably because this murder trial was going to be tough enough. We talked about no body murder cases here before. For those who are new to the show and to refresh everyone's memories, no body cases are harder to get to trial, but because of that, the ones that do go to trial are usually very solid cases, and they actually have a higher conviction rate than cases where the body has been found. That said, not all no-body cases are first-degree murder cases and certainly not death penalty cases. Most are charged as second-degree murder. But the prosecutors here were going to try to go all the way with this. They wanted to prove first-degree premeditated murder with no body, no witnesses to the killing, no murder weapon, and most of the physical evidence long since sent to the landfill. Not only did they have to prove Anne-Marie was dead and that she was dead at Tom's hand, but that Tom had planned it and that he deserved to die for it. To defend himself, Tom assembled a defense team, though they didn't entirely mesh with their approach or style. Add to that, Tom was a nightmare of a client. Due to a few issues, six months prior to the trial, a member of the defense team quit. Being that he was a friend of Tom's, there was speculation that he quit because Tom confessed to him. He couldn't go into trial because it would be an ethical violation. But he later said, much later said, that it wasn't that Tom confessed his guilt, but more that he was facing the reality that his client was guilty. He said he was at a funeral mass and had a quiet moment of reflection. He realized he didn't feel right defending Tom Capano when he believed he was guilty, and Tom's defense was going to be that he wasn't. It would come out many years later that he wasn't the only attorney who wanted to back out. The second attorney said that he ended up not quitting because losing two attorneys that close to trial would put Tom at a disadvantage, both in court, but also in the public eye. So he stuck it out, even though he didn't want to. Because as I said, Tom was an impossible client. As an attorney, as an egomaniac, he thought he knew what he was doing, and he would not listen to the advice of the people he hired to advise him. One example is jury selection. Three young, single women in their mid to late 20s came up and the defense did not strike any of them. The judge was surprised because usually the defense doesn't want jurors who would identify so strongly with the victim, but that's exactly who they were choosing. After they didn't object to the third young woman, the entire defense team called a sidebar and all four of them told the judge they wanted it on the record that they recommended dismissing all three of those women. They didn't do it because Tom insisted they be seated. 
It was important to them to have this on record because they didn't want their competence to be questioned. If Tom wanted to claim ineffective assistance of counsel later, they wanted it to be known that he was dismissing their assistance. Off the record, one of the attorneys told the judge that Tom believed he could charm and manipulate the pretty young female jurors. Jury selection took three weeks in October 1998, and there was a lot of speculation over the possible defense during this time. The DNA match, like I said, it wasn't one in a billion like we often see. It was one in 11,000. So were they going to argue that it wasn't Anne-Marie's blood? Were they going to paint Tom's brothers as liars who were trying to save their own skin? Was Debbie going to be painted as a scorned lover? As soon as the defense started with their opening statement, they gave a clue to their defense. They planned to argue that Anne-Marie's death was an accident and that there was a third person there that night. They did not name that mysterious third person until they cross-examined Debbie. They started by asking her about going to Tom's house the night Anne-Marie died and Debbie denied she was there. Debbie had been ready to give up everything for Tom since 1981, and the first chance he got to throw her under the bus to save himself, he did. The cross-examination of Debbie did give a little foundation to the defense's theory of the crime, but the full story came out when Tom testified in his own defense, largely against the advice of counsel. Tom testified four days, and he went into painful detail about what an amazing person he was. We're going to skip over all of that and get into the story he told. Tom first tried to dismantle the pieces of the state's theory that showed premeditation. Debbie never gave him the gun. She had bought it for herself. He never told Jerry anything about this extortion plot. Jerry was just confused due to drug use. He didn't buy a cooler to put Anne-Marie's body in. It was a gift for Jerry that he just hadn't gotten around to giving him yet. Tom did admit to borrowing money from Jerry, but said it was to offer to pay for a treatment program for Anne-Marie for her eating disorder. As for the night of Anne-Marie's death, Tom said that he and Anne-Marie went out to dinner and left the restaurant to head back to his house. They were just friends at this point, so they were just sitting there watching TV. While Anne-Marie was over, Debbie called and asked to see Tom. Tom said it wasn't a good time, and he went back to watching TV. Suddenly, he and Anne-Marie heard a noise. This was around 11.05 p.m. Tom saw that Debbie had let herself into his house and was standing in the kitchen. She approached him holding a gun and yelling things like, who's this and is this why you couldn't see me? He said she was hysterical. Anne-Marie started to get up saying she was going to leave and Debbie took the gun and pointed it at her own head. Tom, afraid Debbie was going to take her life, grabbed her arm and they tussled over the gun. The gun went off and the bullet hit Anne-Marie behind her right ear. Though Tom tried CPR, Anne-Marie died almost instantly. 
Tom thought about calling 911, but to protect Debbie and himself, he decided to instead cover it up, a move he called cowardly and selfish from the stand. Tom said he told Debbie to go home while he dealt with it. He said he cleaned up the blood and went to Anne-Marie's apartment to make it look like she got home that night. He made sure the groceries were on the counter, the gift he gave her was in the apartment, and then he dialed star 69 to see if his number was the last one to call Anne-Marie. When someone else answered, he hung up the phone. Tom also said he called his law office voicemail system from his house to create some sort of alibi that he went home after the dinner. Then everything else happened, pretty much the way Jerry and Louie had said, except Tom said he was doing it to cover for Debbie, who he testified he was deeply in love with. On cross-examination, the prosecutor managed to really show how many steps Tom took to cover up the murder in a short amount of time, indicating that this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment situation like Tom said it was. This was the execution of a detailed plan. Tom managed to stay calm on the stand until the prosecution started treading on some sensitive areas. The DA was outlining all of the people Tom drew into his scheme, knowingly and unknowingly. Of course, there was Jerry and Louie, but there was also his ex, Kay, who he said he needed to borrow her SUV for their children. Instead, he used it to move Anne-Marie's body and dump evidence. And then the prosecutor brought up Tom's daughters. This was too far for Tom, and he snapped, and not a little. He yelled, don't ask me about my children, and then he started calling the prosecutor names, and he had to be physically removed from the courtroom, screaming that the prosecutor was a liar on his way out. It seems maybe his attorneys were onto something when they advised him not to take the stand. So the jury took the case in January 1999, and the first thing they did was take a poll. The jurors were split 50-50. They then deliberated going over every piece of evidence and discussing if there was reasonable doubt that, one, Tom killed Anne-Marie, and two, that it was premeditated. On January 17th, the jury found Tom Capano guilty of first-degree murder, and they then moved to the penalty phase. Evidence allowed in in a penalty phase is more than what is admissible during the trial, so the jury heard for the first time that stalking an ex wasn't a first-time affair for Tom. In the early 1980s, Tom had a brief affair with yet another woman. Her name was Linda, and she said they had two sexual encounters before she put an end to it. But what followed was months of harassing phone calls, Tom showing up wherever she was, and threats to use his political connections to make her life difficult. And then Tom went a step farther. A man called Linda and tried to blackmail her about her relationship with Tom. At the time, Linda did not know that it was actually Tom who was behind the blackmail calls. He had hired someone to call her. She also didn't know that when she simply denied knowing Tom to the blackmailer and hung up, Tom took it another step. He tried to hire someone to hurt her, 
not kill her, but just maim her. Linda ended up moving out of the state to get away from Tom, and the time frame when he finally stopped harassing her appears to line up with when he started seeing Debbie. The prosecutor was presenting this as evidence to show that Tom was a dangerous man with a pattern of targeting women. On Tom's side, his ex-wife Kay did speak for him. Sort of for him. She made it clear it wasn't necessarily for Tom, but more for their four daughters, who still needed their father. Even if Tom spent the rest of his life in jail, they could have a relationship with him, something the death penalty would take away from them. For their sake, she asked the jury to spare Tom's life. The jury had to find two things here. First, did the state prove the required aggravating factor or factors? And two, if they did, did those aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors? The jury found 11 to 1 that the state had proved at least one aggravating factor and 10 to 2 that the aggravating factors outweighed mitigating. This meant their recommendation to the judge was a death sentence, but it was not unanimous. Delaware at the time was one of the few states that allowed judges to overrule the jury's recommendation. But in March 1999, the judge decided to make the jury's recommendation the official sentence. Tom Capano was sent to death row. But like we've seen in so many cases from this time period, Tom was granted a new sentencing hearing after a new law meant the jury had to be unanimous to hand down the death penalty. The Delaware Attorney General decided not to hold the hearing, which meant Tom's sentence was automatically set at life in prison. Delaware has since abolished the death penalty entirely in 2016. But Tom did not live to see that change. In September 2011, Tom was found unresponsive in his cell and was declared dead at the age of 61. It was determined he died of a heart attack after having lived with heart disease for years. When news broke that Tom was dead, the former Delaware governor who Anne-Marie worked for was now a senator, and he issued a statement through his office that recentered the reporting on Thomas Capano's death to Anne-Marie Fahey's short life. I think his words are perfect to close us out today. He wrote, Tom Capano's death does not change the fact that Anne-Marie was taken from us far too soon. Sadly, nothing will ever bring her back to her family and to those of us who knew and deeply admired her. She was one of the loveliest, kindest persons I have ever had the privilege of serving with. We miss her still and will never forget her. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. 
Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 